I don't know about you, every now and again I kind of need reminded. Uh, because, you know, the, so much of the Christian life is the growing away from the inherited identity that the world gives you and growing into the God-given, Christ-purchased identity that, we, that most of us know in theory but don't live in any way, shape, or form in the fullness, right? So, so all of you have an inherited identity, and many of you didn't choose bits and pieces of this, right? You were born into a poor family. There's a poor family identity. A rich family, there's a rich family identity. You were born in an ethnic family of whatever ethnicity. There's an ethnic identity there. So, so for some of us, some of us are overachievers, and so there's an overachiever identity. Or you were raised in a religious household, so there's a religious identity. We have these scripts that are written for us that we kind of enter into. And then as we go through life, there are defining moments that add to that identity or change it. Now, some of them can be really positive, but a lot of them can be very negative, right? It can be the, the words that somebody says over you. I was, I was with a, a dad a couple of Father's Days ago who hates to go to church on Father's Day. And he showed up and he didn't check the calendar. And so he's in the middle of a Father's Day service and he's just sobbing. And we're talking afterwards and his dad never told him he loved him, not once. Okay, the man's 50 years old, and he still is living in the pain of that. So each and every one of you have bits and pieces of inherited identity, things that you've done to yourself, things done to you, things said about you. Uh, uh, all kind, it can come from family and coaches and friends and whatever else. So you've got this inherited identity, and then you have this Christ-purchased, God-given identity. And so much of learning to walk with Jesus is about laying down the old one and picking up the new one. Now, here's what I know. If you've been a part of church in any way, shape, or form, you know all the theory. So we want to rehearse the theory and then move into how we grow from the one to the other. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, a little bit of a background on Ephesians. Paul, a writer in the first century, he's a missionary, is writing to a church and actually a series of house churches in Ephesus. And Paul, this, this book in particular, but Paul usually does this, this book divides into two parts. The first three chapters are something that theologians call the indicative, and the last three chapters are something, something theologians call the imperative. The indicative indicates what Christ has done. The imperative says what we must do in response. So the first three chapters of Ephesians is nothing but here's what Jesus has done, the indicative. Here, it indicates what Jesus has done. There's only one command in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and it's to remember. In the last three chapters of Ephesians, there's a whole bunch of commands, but they're based on the first three. And, and it's incredibly important that you understand this order. See, religiousness and moralism says, do this and you'll be blessed. Gospel says, you're blessed, so do this. Now, you all got the theory, but to actually live in the middle of the recognition that you're already a part of the family, so act this way, instead of acting this way so you can be a part of the family. So for the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's only one command, and that's to remember. So go ahead, Paul, fire up the slides. This, I'm going to summarize the first three chapters for you. Apart from Christ, you were dead in transgressions and sins, following the ways of the world, ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, enslaved to the cravings and desires of our sinful nature, objects of wrath, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship to Israel, God's people, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God, far away, and no identity as a people. With Christ... 
blessed with every spiritual blessing, chosen before the creation of the world. You are saints, you are holy, you are blameless, you are brought near fellow citizens, adopted as sons and daughters. You are given grace, you are saved, you are redeemed, you are forgiven. You're the dwelling place of God's spirit, members of God's household, predestined, included in Christ, sealed by the spirit, recipients of God's lavish grace, recipients of God's glorious inheritance, alive with Christ, building blocks of God's temple, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, alive with Christ, God's work of art, members of a new humanity, and you have access us to the Father God in Jesus. Now imagine if a group of people actually believed that. How different would they be? Right? I mean, we, the fact that we don't go berserk over a list like that, and, and, and not artificially like, yeah, I know we're supposed to be stoked on that list, but I mean, you could spend weeks over every single item I mean, even adoption. So, so Paul uses in chapter one, he says we're adopted as sons and daughters. That word is magnificent because in Roman adoption, okay, so he was writing during the Roman Empire, under Roman law, if you were adopted into a family, so let's say you were a slave and you were adopted into a family, all of your debts were canceled, you had a new status, and, and you shared in the new family's identity, and you could never be disowned. Under Roman law, biological children could be disowned, but adopted children never could be disowned. So in one, I mean, and this is like, that's one in how many concepts was that, right? I mean, it's so deep and it's so rich and it's so not what most of us live in. So Paul sets out for the first three chapters Here's what you were apart from Christ. Here's what you are in Christ. And then the whole book pivots in chapter four, verse one. And understanding this, I think, is understanding the key to the Christian life. Notice chapter four, verse one. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life, what? Worthy of the calling you have received. Now, the Christian life boils down to how you understand the word worthy here. Because you can understand the word worthy one of two different ways. Worthy can mean, Paul's saying, live a life deserving this. Live a life earning this. Live a life meriting the calling that you've received. And, 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 and though our theology would say, no, no, of course that's not what we think. For the vast majority of us, that's how it feels, and that's kind of the reality we live in. It's like grace isn't a gift, it's a credit card charge that we pay back over time. And so many of us will hear the word worthy here, live a life worthy of somehow we're paying back. Um, Saving Private Ryan, anybody? Anybody know the movie? Okay, spoilers coming. Um, so, so my wife, my wife is quite fond of Matt Damon, um, and that's why she married me, because there's, there's kind of a likeness there, and, and, and I'm, I'm a fan of war movies, and so we went to go see Saving Private Ryan, and it's an older movie now. Tom Hanks is in it, and, and if you've never seen it, the first 20 minutes or so of the movie is the most graphic depiction of warfare. So you can play Call of Duty, or you can watch Saving Private Ryan and find out what it's really like. And, and it's, it's the Normandy invasion on D-Day. And uh, Tom Hanks plays a captain uh, leading a squad of, of soldiers ashore. And it's just brutal, just brutal, just brutal. And then once he gets ashore, he receives the weirdest orders. He's to go find a Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon. 
Private Ryan is the youngest of four children, four men, four brothers that are serving in the war. The oldest three have died in the war. And the secretary of war has said, go find the young one and send him back home because I'm not writing four death letters back to the mom. So Tom Hanks plays a captain whose job it is to lead his squad into enemy territory to find Private Ryan and send him back home away from the war. So the movie unfolds and they undergo all of these sacrifices, right? Several of the people die along the way and and there's a bit of resentment, right? They're risking their necks to send one of the soldiers back home and it's not going to be them. The culmination of the movie is they find Private Ryan and and, and it's in the middle of this big old battle and it centers around this bridge that's being uh, fought over. And most of Tom Hanks' squad is now dead. Tom Hanks, his character is now dying and he pulls the Matt Damon character, the Private Ryan character that they've come to rescue and he pulls him close. Remember what he says? He says, earn this. Earn this. In other words, the sacrifice, all these deaths, the sacrifice of his whole squad, earn this. And then the movie fast forwards 50 years where the, the, the Private Ryan character, now old, is standing before a memorial of the Tom Hanks' character. And he looks at his wife with tears in his eyes and he says, tell me I was a good man. Tell me I earned this. And, and what dawns on you at that point is that the earn this paralyzed and weighed down the Matt Damon character, the whole rest of his life. How do you ever pay back strangers who die for you? If we're not careful, very easily we read, live a life worthy of the calling you've received, as if Jesus were up there looking at everybody saying, okay, you saw what I did for you, right? So earn this. Be deserving of this. Be worthy of this. And so that becomes a suffocating moralism where grace isn't a gift, it's a credit card that we pay back over and over and over. And, and, and I know we know this, but what Paul's saying here isn't that. The word he uses for worthy is the word axios. And it means, don't earn this, it means live a life fitting to the calling you've already received. Live a life corresponding to the calling you've already got. Hold your finger here, go to Romans chapter 16. I want to show you one other place where it's used. See, you're not dazzled yet by that point, and so I'm going to, we'll seek to dazzle you. That was a big point that no one, I'm dazzled by myself, but that's probably the only person. Romans 16, I want to show you another place where this word worthy is used. Romans 16, we'll be right back to Ephesians. Verse 1, Paul writing, different church. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in a place, and I ask you, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way, what? Worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. So he's not saying greet her in a way that deserves her, but greet her in a manner congruent with, fitting to her identity and yours. So here's what Paul's saying. And this is the key to the Christian life, brothers and sisters, right here. Men and women, you've got it all already, so become who you already are. 
You're blessed, so be blessed. You're holy, so be holy. You're righteous, so be righteous. Still not dazzled. I got married at 29, which is surprising I lasted that long. I think we can all agree. No, not really. So, so this thing happens in Ohio where people graduate college and they move out. Do you, are you guys familiar with this? They don't move back home? So, so I don't know. It seems like that's less and less happening. So, so from 18 to 29, I was pretty much on my own. And I started... I had habits and patterns of living that were totally fitting for a bachelor. So for instance, laundry. And these are all common sense things. Laundry, three piles on the floor. Clean, worn once, unwearable, right? And when, and I kid you not, don't, you're horrified right now, you're horrified. My wife can affirm all of this. So when you had one pile, you knew it was time to do laundry, right? So, so, <laughs> Bedding, it never occurred to me to wash my bedding because don't look at, don't judge me. First of all, first of all, I was sleeping by myself. Thank you very much. So no one else. And it's my filth. I mean, who cares? It's why make the bed? You're going to sleep in it later, right? I mean, why? Why? That's so dumb. And who's going to judge me whether my bed's made? I don't want them as friends anyway, if they did. And then dishes, dishes were made to soak. You know what I'm saying? So you cook something and then you eat it out of that same bowl that you cooked it in and then you put it in the sink, you put some water in it and then a week later there's some sort of culture. And so I would just throw the dish away. I know, I know, I know, I know Portland, I know you hate me right now. I know, it's so not green. Uh, but this was in the 80s, everything was going, no, I wasn't. Uh, anyway, so I lived in a manner congruent with being a single guy. I stood in front of a pastor, July 9th, 2000. And he said, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now, was I a husband at that moment? Was I a husband? Yes, I was a husband. Did I have any idea what it meant to be a husband? No. So the goal of my husbanding life was to put off all of those ways of living and thinking and being that were no longer fitting to the new identity I had and to instead put on habits of thinking and living and being that were totally congruent with the fact that I was now a husband. In other words, I was declared a husband and then invited to be one. I was to become what was already true of me. So, I learned that dust ruffles are real things, duvet covers exist, that beds can be made and remade that dishes can be reused, right? And the toilet paper, it goes on the roll and it goes over the top. It does not come up from the bottom. I learned that. I had no idea. I had no idea. So, now, let me ask you, after knowing me for 10 minutes, do you think I got husbanding down yet? No. But, it is the security of my covenant relationship with my wife that gives me the grace to imperfectly learn to be what I already am. In other words, I'm not doing these things to be her husband. I'm doing them because I already am her husband. 
Childbearing. Another example. No one told me that when the infants arrive, they're awful. They're misshapen. They're scaly. I mean, and there are these videos you're supposed to watch, right? That we go to the hospital, they say, watch these videos. I say, I'm not watching any videos. I got to see this once. I don't want to see this any more times than I have to see this. And so, so the child arrives and I literally look and I ask, is everything okay? Because it's not what I, it, you know, when you see the baby Jesus in a manger, that's what I thought they looked like, right? Little halos and they're all, no, this was awful. So one of the, and I kid you not, one of the scariest moments of my life was when we took it home. Because when you're in the hospital, you have nurses that help and feed and change diapers. And then you, and then you go home to an empty house and it's you and your wife and this child. And you've never done this before and it to it's totally breakable. And it's the scariest feeling. Now, what is the, am I a father at that point? Yes. Can I undo my fatherless? No, right? There's no way to undo my fatherness. The job of my being a dad now is to become what's already true. I am a father, so now be one. And it's the grace and security of my fatherness. In other words, I can't lose that as I go that allows me to imperfectly work it out. See, and that, if you can glimpse just a bit of that, that is what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians. The rest of his letter is, hey, put off this and put on this. And what he's saying there isn't, hey guys, to be a Christian means to just get, a, get religion and be moral and be nice and tip well. What he's saying is that following Jesus is to sh shed all the behaviors and patterns and ways of thinking and acting that were congruent when you were apart from Christ, now put on new ones that are fitting to who you actually really are. And that's all done in a covenant of grace so, and here's the big point, brothers and sisters. So that means grace is something that's not just behind you cleaning up after your messes. Grace is in front of you. You're moving from grace to grace to grace. That's all there is. You've got it all. Now work it out. And when you don't, there's grace. So that grace is in front of you, brothers and sisters. It's not just cleaning up your messes. Mike, you screwed that up. You hurt that person's feelings. That's how I've always thought about it. Grace comes up and cleans up afterwards. But that's not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that you move from grace to more grace, to more grace, to more grace, to more grace. And imagine a community of people that actually believed the good news was this good. They'd be a bit different, wouldn't they? See, there's this disconnect between our inherited identity and the real one. And because there's that gap, we are suckers for so many other things that we think will give us life. And the biblical teaching is why are you looking for it? You've already got it. Go to the book of Colossians, if you would. Next book over. It's an aerobic workout up here. Which, you know, if you look at me, you say, well, that wouldn't take much. And I, I know, but that'd be hurtful if you said that. Paul, the same guy, is writing to a church in Colossae, city in the first century, in Asia Minor. Now, he's writing to Christians who are following, who are tempted to follow a false teaching. 
Now, I'm going to explain this false teaching for two minutes, and I'm going to lose most of you, and there is no quiz after this, all right? So if you get lost, the point will still apply. Paul was addressing, and there are many different takes about what he was dealing with, but I think it was a, an early form of Jewish Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism, it's G-N, Gnosticism was based on a Greek word for knowledge called gnosis. Gnosticism split the world into the spiritual and into the physical, and the Gnostics believed, at least certain branches of them, that God had something called pleroma, which was fullness. Pleroma, the pleroma of God was God's fullness, his radiance, his glory. And that the world was like a big triangle with God at the, at the top, and then his pleroma or fullness was diffused down through the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, until you got to the realm of matter, flesh and blood and dirt, and then there wasn't much at all. And so the goal of the Gnostics was to teach you the secret codes and words and names of hierarchies of angels so that you could participate in God's fullness, in God's pleroma. So picture the sun, the closer you get, the more intense it is, the farther away, the less intense it is. That's what pleroma was. The closer you were to God, the more intense it was reflected and you could participate in it. The farther away you were, the less it was intense and you could participate in it. And so the Gnostics said, listen, you Jesus followers, there's more out there than Jesus. There's more pleroma, there's more fullness. Now, again, there's no test on whether or not you got that. But I want you to notice how Paul addresses this, and it's relevant for us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now notice what he says here. For in Christ all the what? Fullness, that's the word pleroma. For in Christ, the fullness of the pleroma of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to what? Okay, so here's what he's saying. Hey, Christians, you're being tempted with the following teaching. You're followers of Jesus, but there's more pleroma out there. Paul says, no, 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 check this out. For in Jesus, the fullness of the fullness, all of the pleroma of Jesus exists in bodily form. And you are in Christ, therefore you have been brought to fullness too. Devastating, devastating argument in the first century. It doesn't, it doesn't hit us like it would them because we're not like tempted with that same sort of false teaching, except that what Paul is saying, and it's brilliant, is he's saying, why would you go look for fullness when you've already got it. That's his argument. Have you ever been on your cell phone? I've done this one time. Honey, do you know where my cell phone is? I cannot find my phone anywhere, right? Or you guys know what sunglasses are, right? These things that they cover your eyes when the sun's out. So, so have you ever put your sunglasses like on your head and you just walked around looking for them? Right? So it, it, it always, you, you always feel exceptionally foolish when you're looking for something you've already got. That's what Paul's saying here. Why are you looking for fullness elsewhere? Jesus has the full fullness of the deity. You're in Jesus, therefore you have fullness too. 
End of story. Why are you looking for something you already have? But see, the Gnostics could tempt the people of God away from their identity simply because our inherited identity is so resilient that we can know all the theory but still think there's fullness elsewhere. Because, I mean, what would it be like if you lived from fullness instead of emptiness? I mean, how much of our comparison and judgment of each other, the envy and the jealousy and the rivalry and the competition would disappear if God's people lived in fullness and not emptiness? Right? How much of the stress about what we look like and what people say about us and what our image is online and how much of all of that would fall away if you live from fullness and not emptiness? How much of our meaningless striving for possessions and success would fall away if we live from fullness and not emptiness? See, the fact that you can know the theory and not live in it leaves the door wide open for our adversary to just tempt the people of God, saying, hey, there's fullness here, there's fullness there, there's fullness over here. And Paul and the other gospel writers and Jesus himself, they just keep saying, no, 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 no. You are in Christ. Christ is in God. You are full. There is no other mystical experience. There is no other secret knowledge. There is no other thing. If you've got Jesus, you've got it all. Now, the key to understanding him, flip back to Colossians 1. Notice what he says, verse 2. Are you guys tracking out there? Yes. Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Notice Paul writes, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers, sisters in Christ. So, does anyone else think it's weird that he uses in Colossae and in Christ the same way? So he describes their physical location in Colossae, like me saying in Portland. And then he says in Christ the same way he said they're in Colossae. Now that's weird. Paul's favorite designation for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is in Christ. And we don't fully understand what that means. So we need Captain America <laughs> to explain it to us. Okay? Mason jar, Captain America. Captain America goes in the mason jar. Would you agree? Captain America's in the mason jar. Now, if I lower the mason jar, have I lowered Captain America? If I raise the mason jar, I raise Captain America. Yes, if I look at the jar, I can't help but see Captain America. And if I want to look at Captain America, I can't help but see the jar. Would you agree? What's true of the jar in some way is true of Captain America, and what's true of Captain America in some way is true of the jar. So when we say Captain America is in the jar, we're saying something more than just where he's physically located. There's something else going on. So, in Colossians, Paul will say, your life is now hidden with Christ in God, and this is what that means. In other words, you can't look at Jesus and not see you, and you can't look at you and not see Jesus. Now again, what would happen if a group of people actually believed this? That your life has been swallowed up, that your failures, your sins, your screw-ups, all of that inherited identity no longer defines you. All I know at this point is to tell you a bit of my journey. Now, to do that, I'm going to tell you three stories. The first story contains two bad words. I'm going to cue you, if you have children in the audience, to cover their ears, or they may not be paying attention anyway. (laughs) 
Okay, so, so these are two words. These are not words that I like. These are not words that I use, but they're central to the story. And I will warn you when I'm about to say them. So you can cover your ears or the ears of someone else. Now, I grew up in the great state of Ohio. Waiting for applause. Yeah, yeah, forced. Um, in, 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 in Ohio, um, uh, unlike Southern California, we have seasons, much like you do. Well, you have rainy season and sunny. We have, you know, summer, winter, spring, fall. And uh, because of that, we didn't have pools. We didn't have swimming pools everywhere. In Southern California, every house has a pool. Where I grew up, we were a town of 3,000 people, and a couple of people had these kind of dinky above-ground pools, but the big pool was in the center of the community. And you, there was a community pool. It was open three months out of the year. So I was in seventh grade, and as a seventh grader, I wasn't quite old enough to work yet. And so what would all my junior high compatriots do all day, every day? We'd walk down to the pool, and that's where we'd be. Now, the pool, this will shock you, there was a hierarchy of coolness about how the tables were arranged, okay? There was the epicenter of cool table right next to the big diving board. And then as you, it's kind of like Pleroma. The more you radiated away, the less cool you were. <laughs> and so it will surprise you to know I didn't have a table and I had one friend, his name was Travis, and he and I would go, but we had no kind of home table. Now, there was one particular day it rained. And so I go to the pool and there is no one there. Maybe four or five of us. So where do we all sit? At the cool table. This is my first and only time at the cool kids table. Now, get ready to cover ears. I sit down and I've never been there before. And I look down and carved with large letters into the picnic table. This is where I'm going to use bad words. So cover ears. Okay. Thank you for covering your dad's ears. I appreciate that. <laughs> Okay, I'm doing it right now so you can't get mad at me. I'm warning you. Okay? Okay. I hate doing it. Okay. But it's central to the story. So written, carved into the picnic table was ass plus fag equals Mike Erie. Now, it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't just that someone had incredibly artistic ability um, <laughs> and took the time to just so nicely carve that in, uh, into the picnic table. But it was that every time all the cool kids sat there, that's what they were looking at. Now, I'm in seventh grade. How secure are you in seventh grade, right? Zero. For the first and only time in my life, I really did not want to keep going. I mean, I just thought, this, how, a little bitty town, this is what people think. So I spent the rest of the summer hiding in my room, right? Brutal, 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 brutal. Now, that was a piece of inherited identity. Because I walked around for the rest of high school thinking, unloved, unwelcome, uninvited, right? I had all kinds of inherited identity. I had a, my parents were the first family to divorce in our little community. So I was the, the, the kid and my only kid in my school that came from a divorced family. So there was the divorce kid script, right? There, so there are all these pieces. And central to the journey of Jesus isn't just learning you're forgiven. It's learning there's something more true of you than that. And so how does it change? Two more stories. First story, I, I worked for a church called Rock Harbor. You've, some of you are familiar with this church. We've had Johnny Hughes here. We've had Todd Proctor here. 
phenomenal church, growing like crazy, similar journey as this. One Easter, we decided we were gonna throw a party for the county and we were, gonna, we were gonna go to the Orange County Fairgrounds in this big amphitheater called Pacific Amphitheater. I saw Duran Duran there about 25 years, too late. <laughs> but they were still going. They were still going. Some of the kids are like, who is that? Who is that? Okay, kids, kids, under the age of 18, go YouTube Duran Duran videos and you will learn about what you missed out on. Now. MTV used to play music. I know that's shocking, but it used to happen. So, squirrel again, sorry. So, so we go to the Pacific Amphitheater. Now, we were doing this big celebration for Easter, and instead of being in a 2,000-person thing, this thing was like six or 8,000 people, right? Massive. And I felt, I felt so nervous, because Easter is one of those crazy holidays where people will come up and say, hey, I'm bringing my brother-in-law who never goes to church. And what's the implication? Don't screw it up, right? This is one shot, and it's all resting on you. You know what I mean? So, so it's Saturday before Easter Sunday. I'm just, I'm just a bundle of nerves. I'm terrified I'm going to screw this thing up. Now, at this time in my life, my first, I have three children. Firstborn was maybe four or five, and he was just getting into sports. And I didn't realize I would be that dad. But I, I turned out to be that dad when my, my, my boy started dominating youth soccer. And I played football, shockingly, but he plays a different football, which I've come to be at peace with. But um, <laughs> he, he was so good. I mean, he would just score four or five goals, and then we'd have to pull him, you know, 10 minutes into the game. He was just too good. It was so fun. I was like, oh, this is great. Now, that's central to the story. Hold on. That's not a squirrel moment. That is a story moment. I'm, it's late at night. It's Saturday night. And I'm walking around the Pacific Amphitheater. A couple of my friends happen to show up and they say, hey, we'd like to pray for you because they see I'm just a mess. So they start praying over me. My mind can focus about five minutes on other people praying. And then I start wandering. And before I know it, I'm thinking about how great my kid is at soccer and how much I enjoy watching him play. I know, I know. My buddy stops his prayer that I hadn't been paying any attention to. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Mike, God wants me to tell you that the same way you think about Nate right now, that's the same way God thinks about you. No. No! Come on! He said, no, you haven't said anything about that. I didn't know that's what you were thinking. It just felt, I felt so in that moment compelled that I was to tell you that. And I just sobbed. And I still don't believe it. Because I know what I was thinking about him. How much I delight in him, and how much I enjoy him. And, and the idea, really, that, that, that God would think that, I mean, I, that's, that's like the stuff of Hallmark movies, right? That's, that's religious cliche. That's not real. So you've got a picnic table moment, and you have an Easter moment. And the goal is just to drop the one and to pick up the other. How? Third story. Friends of ours adopted a child out of the foster care system. They didn't know much about the biological family except that when the child entered their family, they discovered that he would hide food in his room. 
And what they discovered, and they, why? Why are you hiding? Why, why is, where is their food under your bed and under your pillow and in your closet? And, um, and the story kind of tumbled out that the parents would lock this kid in his room from Friday night to Monday morning. And, I, and I'm not sure. They didn't know about the, I don't know how the water worked or the restroom worked, but they wouldn't feed him. And that was his punishment. That's what they did to discipline him. So kids are smart, and so what's he do? He hides food in his room. He gets put into a new family, right? Son, you're part of a new family. This is awesome, right? What's he do? He hides food, because that's all he knows. Now let me ask you a question. Suppose you were the mom or the dad of this child, and you discover the reason why he's hiding food. Are you angry with him? No, you're angry at the parents, but you're not angry at him, are you? No, I think what you say to him at that moment is you don't have to hide food. We'll never, ever do that to you. You don't have to hide food anymore. We'll never. Our family doesn't work this way. You're part of our family now. We don't do that. Do you think he'll trust that? No way. No way. So what will it take for him to begin to believe he doesn't have to hide food. It will take years of love and feeding. When in Ephesians, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When you sin, I, I just wonder, why would he use the word grieve there? Why isn't you offend the Holy Spirit with your awfulness? Why, why, you know, and, and, and certainly our sin is serious, but in Jesus, evidently, it's covered. And so now there is this sense where you grieve the Spirit of God. Could it be that the same way a mother or a father would grieve over their son who hides food because that's all they know? Could it be that a holy God that we now get to call Abba would grieve over his sons and daughters who still hide food because that's all they know and it's just going to take a while for them to trust that their new family's different. See, what I've learned, you need the spirit, you need the scripture, and you need the people of God. And in that combination, over the course of years and years, the shedding of what was written on the picnic table and the embracing of what was said at Easter begins to happen. And in those moments, you realize you've not signed up for a moral, therapeutic, deistic faith. What you've signed up for is being loved into your future. You run from grace to grace, that you're going to screw this up today and screw it up tomorrow, but it is precisely the security of a covenant relationship. That means as you imperfectly work out who you already are, there's grace waiting for you. Could we actually believe the good news is that good?